Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, we'll pick up in verse 9. Now remember last time I shared with you that this particular chapter of the book of Romans is entirely about the patriarch Abraham. And it is so, obviously, for a reason. God's word in its entirety is for us as uh, the church. It presents the gospel to the world. Uh, And this chapter, though at times seemingly a bit arduous, uh, as we get to this particular middle section here, we're going to take through verse 17 tonight, it it almost seems like there's a, a bit of redundancy involved. But I believe it is for a wonderful reason. And that's because we're not so smart sometimes. We have a tendency when we hear things in a shallow way or in a surface way or in a minor way, we begin to forget two or three verses later. And I believe the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul does an amazing thing as he presents to us what seems to be something that's kind of You know, do we really need to talk about circumcision again? But he uses it in the context that should put every last person in this building tonight on notice about how God, in his sovereign plan, moves in our lives by grace and not works. Too many people are bound up in legalism, and too many people live their lives trying to win God's approval by their action. By faith, presenting us in grace, we have God's approval. We do not get God's approval because of the works that we do, or the things that we know. Or the people that we have as our friends and family. Or the church that we go to. And the proof to you that this is so vitally important yet today is world religions. As you look around the world and as you see the principles in them, if there is such a thing as salvation contained within that world religion or something close to it, the concept of nirvana, the concept of the cosmic oneness, the concept of heavenly living, all have to have some path to get there. And that path, without exception, is works. And yet here, plainly, we're told that works can't save you. That in fact, the law itself, Paul is now going to add to that, the law itself can't save you. You see, some people cling to the law. Well, I'll just keep the law. Other people love works. I'll do something for God. And so in one fell swoop at a handful of verses, God speaks to us about grace in action. Verse 9 here in Romans 4. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? And so this part begins with a question. Is there a differentiation about how this happens? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. And so the correct understanding is stated in a single sentence. That literally Abraham's faith was sufficient for him to stand righteous before a holy God. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? When did it happen? How did it happen? These questions are for the logic and reasoning mind. This is a person who's a deep thinker. And in this particular passage is very much a legal argument. Paul's picking apart how people would respond to this whole idea of one having a right relationship with God through nothing but faith. And that faith, remember, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, that faith is not even something that you conjure up. That faith was given to you as a gift. So even the faith through which you believe and receive grace, even the faith itself, is from God. How does that happen? 
not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Begin to wrap your head around what's going on here. When did Abraham exercise faith? It was while he was still a heathen in the Ur of the Chaldees. Before he ever left, he exercised faith. He had faith before he took a single step towards Canaan. He took that first step in that faith. So the faith preceded the works. Very important you get that order right. Because if you don't, then you could think that even faith itself is a work. I've got to work at it. I've got to get me some faith so I can get saved. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe. Matthew 1.1 is pretty clear. Right there in the lineage of Jesus is none other than Abraham. Amen? Literally the father of every last person who believes in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great I Am, Jesus who is the Christ, the name above every name, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That name is the one that Abraham is saved by. Not Abraham's work, and certainly not the act of circumcision. And though they are uncircumcised, that the righteous might be impu- righteousness might be imputed to them also. In other words, it's accounted, it's put in, it's logizomai. It is put into your account, none of your doing. And the father of circumcision to those who are not of the circumcision. You see how he starts to put everyone together and he does it with faith. That's why with God there is no Jew and no Gentile. There's no male, there's no female. There's no Greek, Roman, Jew. We are all one in Christ. And there's one way that that happens. And there's not a Jewish way and a biblical Christian way. There certainly isn't a Hindu way. There absolutely is not a Buddhist way. There's exactly one way, and that's why Jesus said that he was the way and the truth and the life and then qualified the whole thing by saying, and there is no other way. The only name by which men may be saved. But also... Walk in the steps, notice this, of faith, which our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. You see when he got his faith? He didn't get it when he got to Canaan. He didn't get it on the journey to Canaan. He, he didn't get it somewhere along this journey of faith, as people like to say. Well, I was on a quest for faith, and you know, I just worked at it, and eventually I got some faith. It doesn't happen that way. When you receive faith, that faith comes to you as a gift. You didn't all of a sudden work up to it. It was revealed to you. God gave it to you. Even the faith to believe is a gift. And it's exemplified here in the one about whom Scripture makes the deepest promise. You should read Hebrews chapter 11. That's why Abraham is the centerpiece of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or through his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see, it wasn't just that he was going to birth the nation. It wasn't just that he was a special guy. It wasn't the act of circumcision. It was because of his faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise of it no effect. Now think about this for one second. Maybe ten. If you were God for a moment, you're not, but let's say you were. What would you do to make available a right relationship with yourself? Most human beings respond by giving you some set of dictums, some form of work, some manner of living, 
something that you need to do. But God being absolutely just and absolutely wise and knowing among us are people who are capable of great works all in their own flesh and some capable of no work even if you gave them two other people to do it with. Some people free with a great intellect to think through processes and principles and practices and they would come to a right and a logical conclusion about how to get there. Some people could do it with their mind. Some people could do it with their action, maybe. Of course, the ultimate truth is, is you couldn't do it with either of those things. But in a human sense, you would come up with some intellectual way or some physical way or at least some set of rules and regulations whereby someone would go through a process and they would earn your favor. That's what you would do. But God recognizing that even if for one person that was impossible, for one, because he desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance, for even if one person could not do those things, or think those things, or be those things, or understand those things, if one person, then God would not be fully just. And so what does God do? Because he loves everyone universally and because he desires for all of us to know him, he makes the step necessary for us to know him something that's not of us, but of him. Amen? That's really important because it's the only way the whole thing works. It does not work any other way. If it's any other way, then you have people who can never be saved and you have people who were always saved. That could not be a just God. So what does he say? Because the law brings about wrath. You know, we often think, well, the law is good. The law is good. But the law is not a threat, Paul says, to those who are lawful, but the lawbreakers. How many of us in here are lawbreakers? Every last one of us. So the law is a threat to us. Why? Because we can never fully keep it. Never. Won't happen. Don't lie to yourself and think, think that you're the person that can keep it. You can't. So I've said before, if you even think you can, you already have the sin of pride active in your life. So you're doomed. You, you can't do it. You're incapable of being perfect. You were created with a sin nature. And while the, the intellectual understanding that there might be able to be somebody who could keep absolutely everything perfect exists in our minds, in practicality, is not going to happen. So the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. See, here's the interesting thing about the law. And that's why I believe God is absolutely just as he, as he writes these words through the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. The more understanding you have, the more understanding you have that you're lost. Amen? That's what happens. As the law is revealed to you, the intricacies of the law itself bring you to the place. It's like, wow, I am a total dead man. Not, wow, I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I did this, and I do that. That's not what's going to happen. As you understand that God is looking at your heart, and he sees the very intent of your heart, that comes from the law of God, by the way. We're going to get to it. It comes from the book of Genesis. You, you see, as you understand exactly how wicked and deceitful your heart actually is, you're thankful that salvation is by faith because of God's grace and not because of something you did. Because whatever I can do, I can also mess up. Amen? Amen? You see God's sovereign plan in action in this passage. And therefore, if it's of faith, it is of faith, excuse me, that it might be according to grace. Now here's those two words working together. That's why that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 passage is so important to us. We are saved by grace and through faith. Faith is the vehicle that brings us grace. 
And God's grace simply defined for us as his unmerited favor. His grace is his goodness given to us in spite of the information against us. Amen? You see, the information against us is I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. But the grace that is given to us without favor, we, we, God just simply imparts it to us. He's not partial about it. If you've asked him and by faith you've believed, he gives you his grace. He doesn't go, well, I'll give you grace once, or I'll give you grace twice, or I'll give you, give you grace if. He allows you faith to believe and then imparts salvation to you by his unmerited favor. While we were yet sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? That's a picture of his grace. Through faith. Not through your works, not through mine, but through that faith that gives us his grace. So that the promise might be sure to all of the seed. And not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of all of us. Why does it say that? Because ultimately, every last one of us believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the father of Jesus, ultimately. So he becomes the father of all of us. And in a very much more important way, he's also our spiritual father that way. Because he's the first one that we have recorded this immense faith that was sufficient to be accounted to him as righteousness. How was it sufficient? It was saving faith. It was faith that brought him to the place of full surrender to God. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed. And God also gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And so he defines who this God is that he's believing. As we break this passage down, it becomes very clear to us. Now think about some of the things that go on in our world today. And these are real things. And as I share them with you, my intent is not to shame anyone. It's not to bash a particular group. It's simply to say, let's put our spiritual thinking hats on for a moment, and let's actually examine the evidence that we see in our world. Uh, if you were to make the annual pilgrimage to the, sh to the shrine at Guadalupe in, in Mexico, what you would see is this. It's built over a place where Mary supposedly appeared on one occasion. And in the hope of Mary interceding for them with her son, because she is considered to be the co-redemptrix, she actually has a part in your salvation, which obviously does not come from the scripture, because Mary herself said to Jesus, you are my Lord. So you can't share in something that you do while the other person is superior to you. You, you see, that intercession, Jesus, every year... What you see is myriads, thousands, hundreds of thousands have actually done this, have crawled on their hands and knees on cobblestone streets for more than a half a mile, oftentimes over broken glass, boards with nails in them, uh, whipping themselves, flailing themselves until they bleed profusely, and then going in to, to light candles in hopes that they might reduce the amount of time that someone would spend in purgatory. Oh my. If that's what we need to do, now bear in mind, that is just to get someone a little less time in purgatory. Even that won't save you. A half a mile on your hands and knees on cobblestones with broken glass. That's an awful lot of work for not much. No idea of saving grace. The concept of purgatory isn't even found in Scripture. Another example is the great Hindu religious festival. They hold it every 12 years. It's the Mahakumbha Mela, and it's held at the confluence of the the Yampa and the Ganges River. These two rivers flow together at that place. There have been times, they've shot a picture of it from a Geosat satellite, that there have been more than a million people gathered at that. It's the largest single gathering, religious gathering in the world. And there is a gather. Those two of 
I think they're number five and seven of the most polluted rivers on the planet Earth. And they come together in a confluence. In other words, the two rivers join there. And while the people that come there disregard the difficult journey, they disregard the expense, oftentimes they sell everything to get there. On this event that happens every 12 years, temporarily the caste system is set aside. You have Dalits and Brahmins in the same place, unheard of in Hindu society. Festival is, is led by a group of stark naked men, shaved completely of all their hair, screaming, yelling. These holy men eventually take up places along the riverbank on beds of nails, broken glass, barbed wire. Same basic thing. Now bear in mind, one was in Mexico. This is in India. Halfway around the world from each other. To appease the myriad of gods, there are more than 2,000 Hindu gods. To appease all of those gods... They do things like allow their limbs to atrophy. They won't lift their hands. They'll just leave them hanging. Some of them will hold their hands in the air for years on end. Their fingernails grow to feet long. All to supposedly gain favor in the afterlife. The Hindu holy book, the Veda, says this. Those who bathe in the conflicts of the black and the white river, that's the Ganja and the Yoma, go to heaven. Another place in that same book. The pilgrim who bathes in this place wins absolution for his whole family, even if he has perpetrated a hundred crimes. He is redeemed the moment he touches the Ganja. And those waters wash away his sins. Part of that festival is there are booths that are set up where you can go and have all the hair shaved off of your body just like the fakers do. They gather that hair up, they take it to the river, and they throw it in the river. Now bear in mind, common sight in both those rivers are corpses. The sewage of more than 500 million people flows in those two rivers. They throw it in. And it says in that same book, for every hair thus thrown in, you were promised a million years residence in heaven. That's what mankind comes up with. That's what humans think of. You see, sometimes when we think about these things, we don't think in those terms. Man instinctively knows that there's someone outside of this space and time domain that we live in. And we're trying to make right with them. And God says, look, the answer to this is faith. And I'm going to give it to you, if you ask. So we assault this works concept in this passage. Believing faith is what, re- that's what brings you to that place of redeeming grace. That, that belief that God is who he says he is, that God sent his only begotten son to this world to die for our sins. He, in fact, did die on Calvary's cross. And that when he died, that final cry to tell us die, and into thy hands I commend my spirit, Father. And Father from heaven looks upon that and says, it is well, I'm well pleased with the sacrifice. It's done. So the work was done at the cross. All that's left for us is to believe that that work was done. And God gives us that faith to believe that thing. So when you think about it, can those works save? No, you can't. And there's three things that are, that are in this passage as we kind of breeze through them. 
Abraham could have looked at this and, and in view is his circumcision. Was he saved by that? We're going to find the answers now. Did he get saved by keeping the law? We're going to find again that the answer is no. And then we're going to find that the only thing that saved him was God's grace through the faith that he believed. Abraham wasn't justified by that circumcision. It, it was only grace. When you think about it, you can think about it this way. I skipped over two here. And, and so in this first thought, was he saved by circumcision? There are all, all kinds of people. And in fact, the apocryphal book of Jubilees actually declared that, that it was in fact circumcision that imparted uh, righteousness to the Jewish, Jewish male. And for you ladies who have a little bit of a, perhaps a little more of a feminist bent, um, you couldn't save yourself. You needed to be saved by the action of your husband. So if you don't like what's going on now, you would have really hated what was going on then. Now, we can't understand how a unique mark of the cutting off of a tiny piece of flesh on a, on a young boy at eight days old does anything for anyone. But to the Jewish people, they revered circumcision. It was an absolute necessity. It was a huge deal. It was the mark that they were at the covenant that was made with Abraham. And so to them, everything, everything to some degree, at least began and hinged on that one act. Boggles our minds. There's lots of things you begin to think of when you, when you go through that process. You, you see, following the law and following the, the strict command to be circumcised, it was so strong in the culture that it was actually taught by the rabbis that if a Jewish man died who was circumcised, that if he was to go to hell he would have to have the circumcision reversed in order to go there. That's how powerful they believed that circumcision was. It would literally need to be reversed. In fact, Paul, as he was talking about his own life, he actually remarked about as he was circumcised on the eighth day. He wanted everybody to, to know, look, I, I want you to know, I am a Jewish man. Matter of fact, I am a Jewish rabbi. Matter of fact, I am a Jewish rabbi who was a Pharisee. Matter of fact, I'm a Jewish rabbi who was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin who has every knowledge of all things Jewish. And I'm telling you, it can't save you. So the Jewish people believed that there was a work that could be done. It was a sign of the covenant. And so, was he saved by the circumcision? This passage says he absolutely was not. Is the blessing then, notice verses 9 and 10, upon them the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised? For we say, by faith it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it, rec how was it then re reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He was reckoned while he was uncircumcised. So to the Jewish person, if they actually logically followed it all the way back to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish faith, we are, of the, we are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The Jewish person would have understood that. And if they actually went all the way back to Abraham, wait a second. It was accounted unto Abraham as righteousness when he was still a heathen in the land of of the Ur of the Chaldees. What a mess. You can almost see the wheels turning. It's like, what are we going to do? The question that would come up for us is, in all of this, is there, there really any relevance for us today? Because when we think about it, it's like, you know, I mean, come on. Nobody believes. Matter of fact, no Jewish person today actually believes that circumcision saves. But that actually is the mindset. That somehow there was something special that happened. The relevance for our day is this. There are millions, perhaps a billion or more people in our world today, right now, tonight, 
to believe in very similar things, having the capacity to save you. And though it's not a surgery that happens to a young boy at eight years of age, the fundamental doctrines of salvation of the Catholic Church are very, very similar in the regard for works. In other words, something that you have to do, and furthermore, something that if you do them, they have the capacity to actually save you. And I wouldn't encourage you to buy it, but if you should care to go online, you can look at a vast majority of it, The Fundamentals of Catholic Doctrine by Dr. Ludwig Ott. It's actually a manual for the priesthood, so it's a manual that you study to become a Catholic priest. And again, let me say very clearly and categorically, I understand fully, have met, know some brothers and sisters in the Lord who are Catholics. So I'm not talking about an individual Catholic here. I'm talking about what the Catholic Church actually teaches as a matter of doctrine. So make sure you understand that. The Catholic Church clearly teaches that it actually is by the sacraments of the Catholic Church that one becomes saved. It has nothing to do with your personal faith. It has to do with you fulfilling the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And so if you read that manual, it defines the Roman Catechism as the thing is perceptible to the senses upon which the ground of divine institution possesses power of affecting and sanctifying righteousness. That's the sacraments. That's not your faith. That's doing the things that the Catholic Church says you need to do. It also says on page 343, for the dispensing of this grace is necessary for the minister to accomplish the sacramental sign in the proper manner. In other words, you have to do things in the right way. That's with regard to salvation. And the reason I'm talking about this is we need to make sure that we don't think that going to church a certain way and doing things in a certain order or having a certain manner of living or doing anything besides believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith has any capacity or power to save us. It's not shaving all the hair off of your body and throwing it in a filthy river. It's not crawling on broken nails and glass. It's not whipping yourself. It's not you saying as many Hail Marys and Our Fathers as you can possibly say in your entire lifetime. It does not matter how many candles you light. None of those things are effectual for the forgiveness of sin. And yet the official doctrine of the church says otherwise. Quoting the mid-16th century Council of Trent, it says there on page 354, If anyone denies that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred by baptism, the original sin and guilt is remitted, or asserts that the whole of which is true or proper, let him be an anathema. In other words, you're saved by baptism into the Catholic Church. You're not saved by faith. You're not saved by God's grace. You're saved by an act. And what that means is, as far as the official doctrine of the church is concerned, that if you're not baptized into the Catholic Church, you are not saved. That's directly from the manual. There's a point to all that. They go on to say, baptism affects the forgiveness of all punishment of sin, both for the eternal and for the temporal. Do you get the picture? In other words, you have to be baptized to have your sins forgiven. And furthermore, you can't do it yourself. It has to be done by a priest. That's a scary thing. Because I know a whole bunch of people who aren't Catholics. There's quite a few of them in this room. I don't really say that to mock. I'm just saying, think about it for a second. If God is perfectly just, absolutely fair, and desires all men to be saved, why would he make it so that you have to be baptized in a certain manner, a certain way, by a certain person? I'm thinking he wouldn't. So there's something wrong with that picture. That's why I know that picture isn't correct. It's not spiritual food that you're taking when you take communion. It is a resemblance, a remembrance 
of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not his literal body and his literal blood. It is simply a sign that we identify that he paid the price that I can't pay. You see, there are all kinds of things, and we could go on all night talking about the various practices that are contained within the church and the world today. And by the way, the Protestants aren't much better. There are a number of evangelical Christian groups that believe you're saved by infant baptism. If you're saved by infant baptism, I'm going straight to hell. Because I was not baptized as an infant. It can't be that way. And don't let anybody tell you any different because your Bible says very clearly, using the example of Abraham, that it is faith that brings you grace that saves. None of the rites that we do, none of the sacraments, so to speak, have any capacity to save you. Those things are what we do once we are saved. They themselves can't save you. Because your Bible says clearly that we're not saved by any work, including really good works, like being baptized, or taking communion, or fellowshipping, or reading your Bible, or understanding your Bible. Or understanding the law that's contained within your Bible. None of those things, because they are all work. They may be good works. But this passage puts a finger on it and says, none of them can do it. Not even the very best of those things, which are exemplified in the one man that we could look from the Old Testament all the way through, mentioned in the book of Hebrews, a man like Abraham, He was justified by his faith. Grace given to him and righteousness. Now, put in the place of his sin. He stands righteous before holy God because of Christ. By faith. Abraham wasn't justified by the law either. Notice what it says in verse 13. For the promise of Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness that came to him is what gave him the right standing with God. And that was a gift to him. It wasn't his understanding of the law. For those who are of the law are heirs, and faith is made void. Promise is nullified. The law brings about wrath. Where there is no law, neither is there any violation. What puts away the law? Grace. Amen? That's what happens. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he reminded us, look, our lives in grace, grace is so superior to the law that he says to walk in the spirit is to actually deal with the law. What the law can't do in that it was weak in my flesh faith that's been given as a gift that results in grace is able to do. It brings about salvation. And it's available to everyone. Man has never been able to come to God by any means of outward conduct or ceremony or or knowledge. Whether it's circumcision or whether it's law, it wouldn't matter which one you're talking about. You see what ultimately happens. If you look at the promise that was made to Abraham, it contained really four component parts. The first of which was was the land that was given to him. This promise there in Genesis 15, and Abraham would live, but he would not possess it till some five, they wouldn't possess it for five centuries after Abraham got there. Think of that for a second. You talk about faith. They waited for five centuries to take possession of that land. Countless millions died So if it was all on Abraham actually possessing that land, bummer. But it was the faith with which Abraham went, not the possession of the land. God's making all of the Abrahamic covenant, in essence, a picture of the grace of God. 
The second part of that, it involved the people. Those people would be so numerous they could not be numbered. Do you know anything about the history of the Jewish people? They were not exactly a numerous people. Today, they're still not a numerous people. So how could they be that numerous? Because there'd be a few of us grafted in. There'd be a whole bunch of us. Hosts of heaven. Because of faith. A third thing was the blessing that the entire world through his descendants, well, who got blessed through Abraham's descendants? The entire world. For through him came Jesus the Christ, Messiah. But how do you receive Messiah? We just got told it's not by being Jewish, right? It's not because you're a keeper of the law, right? Not because you're circumcised. It's not because you're part of the tribe of the Israelites. It's by grace and through faith. And a fourth thing would be filled be fulfilled by the, the bringing of the Redeemer, that descendant. And of course, it's exactly what happened. That's why those genealogies in Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel are so important. We see that they believed. And when you look at those four things, guess what they equal? The gospel. It's a gospel message. It's a beautiful picture. That's why when... When Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, God will provide himself the sacrifice. Who was himself? God himself. The Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb in the thicket was just simply a representation of the Lamb who would come. Abraham got the gospel. I'll make myself an offering for your sin. You see, God has never recognized man's righteousness, and that's why there in Hebrews 11, there in verse 17, by faith Abraham was tested, he offered up Isaac, and when he'd received the promises, was offering his only begotten son, it was to him he said, Isaac, you're to said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. And he considered that God was able to even raise men from the dead, which whom he received back as a type. He's saying, look, I so believe by faith that you are who you say you are, that even if I stick a knife in my son, you'll raise him from the dead. That's a lot of faith. Amen? Amen. That's faith that works. When James said, I'll show you my faith by my works, this is, this is faith that works right here. And so he simply says, look, the law was just given to you to give you, as Paul said, uh, some tutorage to Christ to stimulate you to recognize you can't do it on your own. And because of that, so we wrap this up, Abraham was justified by God's grace alone. He was given faith. That faith results in that free gift of God's grace, the unmerited favor. And so in that, the righteousness of God is placed in the account of Abraham. And Abraham's sin is removed from his account and put into Jesus' account. And Jesus paid for every one of those sins. Books balanced. Remember spiritual accounting? Abraham, how was he accounted for? The same way you and I are. He waited in faith, believed in faith, acted in faith, and because he did that, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And the moment Jesus said, it is finished, boom, done. Come on home, Abraham. Same thing one day you and I may hear when he brings the church home in the rapture. Amen? Come on up here. The crux of this passage is really verse 16. And for this reason by faith, that it might be in accordance with grace, 
in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith in Abraham, who is the father of all of us, as it is written, the father of many nations I have made you, in the sight of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not. He says, look, God reckons the believer's faith as righteousness that it might be in accordance with grace, unmerited favor. Not works of any kind, not sacraments of any kind, not religious activity of any kind. That's why faith is not, now think of this for a second, because some people make it this way. That's why faith itself cannot be a work. Some people think that faith is actually a work. It's something you need to do and build up to and acquire. No, faith is a gift. It's not something you can earn. It's a gift. God gives it to you so that you can believe. And in believing, he sees that you've received that faith gift, and then he gives you the grace gift. Here you go. It's yours. All on his merit. You simply believe. Abraham's faith in that way was not righteousness itself. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. God saw that faith and said, here you go. Here's the grace. It's an amazing passage when you begin to really think about it. Unless there be any doubt about which God was being spoken of by the Apostle Paul, notice the two things that he says. Who gives life to the dead. What's the one thing that makes Jesus completely unique? David the prophet in the 16th Psalm said that Sheol would not hold him. Jesus Christ, what were they worried about? Why was the stone rolled in front of the door and why were the Roman guards put out there? Because they wanted to make sure that Jesus' cold dead body stayed in that tomb. And so what does Paul say? In case you're misunderstanding, the God I'm talking about is the God who gives life to the dead. And in case you didn't get that one, he said the God I'm talking about, who gives life to the dead, is the one who calls into beings things from nothing. What does Genesis tell us in the very first chapter? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. So in case you're not under getting it, you, you know, your, your brain's not quite functioning. You can only be saved by a grace gift that comes to you through faith. And it's only in God who is able to raise people from the dead and who created everything from nothing. Boom, done. He said, I don't want you to miss this. Because I don't want you to get all religious on me. I want you to walk in grace. I want you to walk in faith. I want you to believe. And I want you to walk in, in that newness of life. And I want you to understand, I love you. And so there's this beautiful picture. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That God so loved this world that he gave us his only begotten son. That whosoever should be leave in him. Not work towards him. Not do something for him. Not participate in church. But whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? Would you stand with me and let's pray. As the worship team comes back out, I want to give you an opportunity tonight, maybe tonight's a night you came with a friend, you came to this crazy place that used to be a warehouse, that's called a church, and maybe you've never heard the gospel message, you heard the gospel message tonight. 
And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that message. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that promise there of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace that we've been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. Not that any of us can boast. I want to offer that gift. If you're here tonight, you've never received Christ as your Savior. He loves you. Jesus came specifically to this world as God incarnate in human flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died on Calvary's cross. He was buried in the grave. He was raised three days later. And when he was raised, he was seen by hundreds of people alive on this earth. And he ascended to heaven before the eyes of witnesses. So there wouldn't be any mistake. That Jesus offers you tonight eternal life by simply believing in him. And he will give you faith to do that. Church, if you'd bow your your heads, close your eyes. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus and you want to know him before you leave, just slip your hand up right where you're at. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to have you pray right where you are. It's an act of faith. It's not a work. Anyone here? I'll give you a couple of minutes. Think about it. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless your name for the faith that you've given us to believe. And we pray that you would strengthen us, Lord. Tonight there are many of us here who just adore you. And we thank you for dying on Calvary's cross for us. We thank you that the knowledge we have of you didn't save us. We thank you that church hasn't saved us. We thank you biblical knowledge hasn't saved us. We thank you... Baptism doesn't save us. We thank you that taking communion doesn't save us. We thank you that you gave us a gift of faith. And as we received it, you gave us grace, your unmerited favor. And through that unmerited favor, we have eternal life. We've been justified. Our sins taken from our account, placed in Jesus' account. And Jesus, your righteousness, placed in our account in its place. And we are free. And the ones who the Son has set free are free indeed. And we thank you for that. We bless your name. We thank you, Lord. It's what Christmas is about. The greatest gift that's ever been given was you for us, Lord. And we thank you for that. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Amen.